The brave new world is so wonderful. Everyone works from home, and that's spectacular. Except when stuff breaks, and stuff breaks all the time. And it's mostly stuff that isn't yours, but that doesn't mean it's not your problem. So what's a network engineer to do? Learn how to troubleshoot smarter and design better. And on today's episode of Heavy Networking, that is precisely what we aim to do. We're going to review some of the outages that we've noticed in 2020 and consider some network design tips for internet and VPN so you can support those many, many people that are working from home more effectively. Along the way, we're going to discuss some tools you can use to help you figure out what is really broken. And that matters because going to management and saying, it's not us, boss, that really isn't good enough. You need to be able to say not just what it isn't, but also what it is and what the business can do about it. Our sponsor today is Thousand Eyes. They study the internet deeply and have lots of insights to offer about what's really happening when the internet is broken, Angelique Medina and Archna K7, who've been on the Packet Pushers podcast network several times before, they are joining us today for the discussion. Folks, we want to jump into some of these outages because as we were prepping for the show, we started talking about some of the major outages that hit the news that impacted uh, all of us here in some way or another. Uh, Angelique, there was a Google Cloud platform outage back in March, uh, towards the end of the month there. Could you uh, compartmentalize that one for us as we start talking through all the bad things that have been happening on the internet lately? Yeah, absolutely. And that's an interesting one because, you know, outages happen on the internet and we've covered them in the past. We've talked about um, ones that have happened last year. But the one that happened in March was kind of interesting because one, it was Google, which is, it's pretty unusual that that we would see an outage of that size with them. But also they had to basically come out and say and make a statement uh, around the fact that this had nothing to do with traffic increases as a result of shutdowns um, due to the pandemic, because that was sort of everyone's assumption was like, oh my God, like the sky is falling and and Google's not able to keep up. And it was, it turned out it was a, a router issue in Atlanta um, that then affected a lot of backend uh, dependencies for some of their applications. Which is scary, right? To hear that in a network that would be designed presumably as redundant and resilient as you could imagine, but a router failure in Atlanta affected traffic throughout that region. It was scary from a sense of we rely on Google Cloud and many other services that are out there, and yet something like a failure in their network can impact the rest of us. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's kind of interesting too is in looking at, because not all of their users were impacted, um, but we could see, for example, that some users like in Texas or even some on the West Coast were impacted. And so it wasn't just something where it was like, hey, if you're on the East Coast or if it was like you're in that local area. And part of the reason for that is because um, it's not just the front-end web server that you're hitting. You also have to consider that there's going to be all these um, interactions on the application side, and that mm-hmm. might involve connecting to a server that's much further away from you. Well, another kind of outage that comes up often is the route leak. We're seeing BGP, effectively BGP hijacking, whether intentional or not, but there's, there's some kind of a route leak where more specific routes are being uh, leaked out on the internet that is driving traffic that should be going to some other service and it ends up heading into some service provider that is leaking this route, who is then blackholing the traffic. So, for example, uh, Ross Telecom uh, ran into this uh, back in April of 2020. Oh, totally. Like BGP route leaks and hijacks. And that's something we've been covering uh, in the past as well. And Ross Telecom specifically, um, as, as a provider, has been in the news, um, not just this year, but but in the past as well, where they leaked 
uh, prefixes that were impacting, you know, e-commerce and then some payment gateway prefixes, right? And the impact of that was, it can be different. The impact of a BGP route leak or a hijack can be different in the sense that the one we saw earlier this year uh, was essentially Ross Telecom leaking a more specific prefix um, to Cloudflare was one of the services impacted. So they leaked a really specific, you know, slash 21. The specificity of the leak was sort of an, in, kind of gave you a clue as to what the cause was because um, Cloudflare doesn't announce a slash right, 21. Months. And mm-hmm. so this wasn't something that kind of just occurs in, in nature, if you will, or in the wilds of the internet. This was something that mm. Uh, was likely because of a BGP optimizer that they were using and um, likely leaked this to one of their their um, peers. Right. Um, yeah, people have been complaining about BGP optimizers a lot. Yeah. Uh, there's particular vendors of software that do BGP optimization. And a lot of the, uh, I want to say the big players or the big, big speaker, like the public people have high public profile, are fairly critical. I'm not going to name the products here. I just wonder if you're sort of coming to the same view that these BGP optimizers that work a lot on uh, heavy AS prepending or by issuing large numbers of, you know, smaller subnet route, you know, slash 24s out of a slash 20 and just hammer them and then rescind them and then change them all around as they try and load balance the traffic. Do you think that a lot of these outages are caused by that? It does. Well, I mean, so so you bring up some of these big providers and it's kind of easy to understand why they would have that opinion of optimizers because they are typically the ones that are kind of the victims of them when these things happen. Yeah. There was one last year that Cloudflare also um, was uh, where their routes were basically um, hijacked. And that was yeah. that was in the U.S. and it was like a, a very small telecom provider that kind of um, leaked them through one of their customers. I think it was Allegheny Steel or something yeah. like that. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And then Verizon propagated that out, and then it caused just kind of the mayhem that it did. So, somewhat understandable. To you know, it's it does seem like it's one of these things that are somewhat dangerous in terms of BGP. Um, I, I think you know, the danger kind of um, gets gets worse because, okay, fine, you leak, um, you know, a, a more specific route, um, but then you have your peers like, you know, blindly accepting that route and then propagating it over, right? So it's kind of mm-hmm. amplified. And I think that's the bigger challenge too with um, BGP is in terms of um, security. I mean, there's really no, um, it's based on trust, right? It's based on implicit trust. So you send me something, I'm going to assume there is no uh, malicious intent and this is meant to be and I'm kind of propagated. So even the whole um, Verizon impact that Angelique, like referring to the last year incident uh, was mm. kind of you know, amplified because of that. This year's Ross Telecom's um, hijack was also amplified because of that, because Level 3 and Hurricane Electric, just, you know, and these are really big providers, right? And they propagate mm, yeah, yeah. other ISPs. So it's kind of this, this relay that gets amplified um, of sorts with BGP. As you said, it's a, it's a matter of trust. It's one of those things where when you're a transit provider talking to another transit provider, you kind of don't have a choice if you're not fully engaged in some sort of route origin validation, which that's mm. um, far from widely distributed <laughs> at this point, those features and how they work yeah. and their success and 
yeah, and so on. So you kind of have a choice. It's not like if you're a consumer of BGP sitting way out at the edge as a like an end customer and you're just announcing a couple of routes. Yeah, your provider is going to filter those, but you couldn't do that as a as a transit provider, as you say. So we're kind of in this state, I think, probably for a long time where this kind of thing is likely to happen and we need to defend ourselves against it as best we can. Uh, the other interesting thing here is that as we'll, we'll go through a few more of these in a minute, but one of the themes, there's a couple of themes. One is these BGP optimizers seem to be a repeating story. And another one is the small players are a repeating story. And you would sort of think that a small company, um, a small telco is often at the source of the mistake. But the flip side of this is it's often a big telco. So the CenturyLink or the Virgin Media or the Equinox outages, which we'll talk about in a minute. So it's not small telcos that are just always at fault who don't have the right skills or the right methods or insufficient resources to do the networks. It's just as much big and small. That seems to be a consistent story too. So let's talk about CenturyLink here. Um, in this case, it wasn't a BGP leak, but it was a big provider that was victimized by multiple fiber cuts. This goes back to the end of April in 2020. And as they reported on this outage, they said that the network is engineered to withstand a single fault in the backbone. And today there were multiple fiber cuts. I'd love to know what that actually means. Does that mean they had a multiple fiber runs in a bundle, in the same manhole, and it got dug up? Or were there several backhoes scattered across several square miles that got dug up? I think it's probably the, the former one. But again, it's another one of those situations where you're a victim of CenturyLink's network design in this case. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so this is this is not the the outage with a capital O that happened recently with CenturyLink. This is one that happened earlier in the year, and um, as you mentioned, was brought on by um, a couple of fiber cuts. So similar to the Comcast outage a couple of years ago, where they there was a fiber cut. There was some disruption as a result of that, but it was the second fiber cut that happened before they were able to remediate the first one that basically damaged kind of the connectivity across their control plane. And then that led to this really massive outage. So in the case of CenturyLink, didn't get a lot of follow-on detail from them as to what happened. But um, as you say, it it had fairly widespread impact across, I think in particular, southern part of the US and the East Coast, if I recall. Um, and, and yeah, so, and there was just a lot of folks that didn't know what was going on at the time. I think the, the, the interesting thing, I think Eden, you touched upon that is the whole concept of redundancy, right? Like, was it, um, within the same bundle, was there two links that were impacted or were they two separate links itself? Right. And I think the concept of redundancy and, um, how you're architecting, this is, this in case is that link. So it's not like in enterprises could have done anything about it, but, if we extend the topic of redundancy to say cloud providers and um, how are you looking at provisioning your applications in say GCP or AWS and, and you have the concept of regions and availability zones and all of that. And if there is an outage that impacts, you know, more than half the region, like what do you do then? What does redundancy look like? Right. And there was an outage earlier in the year where um, this was with Google and uh, it, it was not their, um, most popular region, um, but it still impacted, you know, two of the three availability zones that were in that region. Even though it was for a short period of time, you know, what do you do when your uh, framework of redundancy fails at all points? 
Yeah, you're, you're mm, spreading across mm. multiple availability zones. That's your resilience plan. And then multiple availability zones fail at the same time due to the same outage, right? Uh, again, you as the network designer have to lean in as these cloud apps are going up and go, hey, we really need to be spread across regions. And here's why. You can demonstrate a pattern of failures that have happened where it's possible, it's possible, not likely, but possible that two availability zones could go down and and therefore you're offline. You have to rethink and retool how that application is presented uh, to the public. Right. And I, and I think um, one aspect there is, first of understanding how each of the providers that you rely on, um, you know, how their construct of, you know, resiliency works. Is availability zone uh, the same uh, for, you know, cloud provider one versus cloud provider two, right? That's where assumptions uh don't go uh, too far. And that's something you need to ask the provider, okay, is this uh, physically distant or is this two different floors yeah. in the same um, data center? I don't know. Hmm. No, we're talking yeah. cloud here, but we can talk about your local telco as well. There's still plenty of us that are operating some sort of local data center. You should be able to find out from your various WAN providers exactly what their cable map in the area looks like. They might have to dig and they might be cross and grumpy with you for asking, but they have those <laughs> maps. They can show you exactly what the cable infrastructure in the area looks like. And I've been on oh, projects where oh, we've said- gee, you, you are being very kind. They'll show you a map and it may even be what they believe it to be. So that is, So they can show you a map. They can also show you a map that they believe to be correct, uh, and they can also attempt to show you a map which may actually be correct. There is no guarantee, and CenturyLink in particular is famous for the first two and not so much for the last one, and so much so that CenturyLink really has recently renamed itself Lumen, and the scuttlebutt from people inside the industry is that they you can type the word CenturyLink outage and it looks pretty brutal for SEO, so they actually renamed the company to get away from it. <laughs> well, so there's a larger point I'm trying to make here, Greg, which is despite what the quality of the mapping information might be, you can use that as a basis to say, hey, I'm looking for truly redundant paths out of this building. So I, again, I've been on projects like this. We're going to take this set of cables and go aerial on telephone poles out the door and a different path and go underground and get as much path diversity back to the CO as possible. And right, I completely agree with you, Greg. Sometimes these maps are an interesting belief system that is based on, <laughs> on faith and hope that, uh, that it's like that. Sure, but you can try. That's right, you yeah. Can, when, you really can engage. That's what we have on record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the, that's what we have on record. But is it accurate? That's yeah, what yeah, we have on yeah, record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's at least worth asking those questions because, you know, I mean, it, just to bring up another example of this. So the, the Equinix, uh, the recent Equinix outage in London was also um, there was the, the the kind of the cause of this apparently was that both of their power supplies and they were supposedly redundant um, and independently powered um, failed, and that caused um, a widespread effect on a number to, of service yeah. providers. Yeah, yeah. So that's I mean, a major colo that whole facility. Whole, yeah, absolutely. You know, is a major pop of telcos, especially to interconnect. Mm -hmm. Equinox mm -hmm. itself is not only a data center owner, but it's also a place for co-location where carriers can cross-connect to each other, both right. privately and public. So yeah. yeah, and even like I think the London uh, Lynx is, is yeah. like actually is in that facility as well, and so their customers were impacted. And maybe I don't I don't know if they even knew perhaps that they were in the Equinox facility or not. Um, but those are just 
good things to understand and kind of probe more because those have come up more recently where you think that you have there, there's redundancy. And in fact, it's, mm. it's not well, necessarily the case. Right. How, how often is the power cut over, uh, tested? Uh, cause another thing yeah. that fails in these systems is maybe not the UPS itself, but the ATS, the automatic transfer mm. switch that cuts you oh. over. There's a, there's a mm-hmm. battery system there that's going to provide power to get you cut from one side to the other, which should only take milliseconds, but you'd need that, that burst of battery in there to keep things going. But those automatic transfer switches can fail. They're massive things. Um, and if there's not regular testing gone on, there's not regular maintenance that's gone on on what is a very complex mm. power distribution system, you're potentially at risk thinking you've got this wonderful, uninterruptible haha, power supply. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, and yeah, then and the, uh, the LDA And when happens. the smoke comes out of the ATS, that's pretty grim, mm. uh, you know, because it doesn't <laughs> work. And I mean, th- that's an interesting point because just to deviate slightly, what we're actually seeing now is companies like AWS and Google in their mega data centers, they actually now have their own custom designs for those. They found mm. that the commercial implementations of those UPSs and even the electricity substations were so uh, old, you know, based on mm. principles from 40 or 50 years ago, electrical principles, that uh, these companies have now actually gone off and commissioned entire design teams to make their own versions of that. That's part of the reason why public cloud is now so expensive is because as they scaled up, they can't just use the available infrastructure. They actually have to build their own. And Mm. a lot of the data centers now build their own transformers. They have their own special concrete designs for the buildings and, you know, custom UPS systems that that have, you know, radically different designs. And that all costs money. Um, So just to deviate slightly. That's really interesting. We said that they were only building their own routers and switches, but nope, they're going all the way to the power tube. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Because if you in a in a put a data center in an area and the transformers were built 35 years ago, that's quite common. The lifespan for a uh, high voltage transformer is 50 years. Um, and if they blow, they actually often full of this highly toxic mineral oil. And uh, once it goes, it can be six months before they get in to do the cleanup. Mm. It's wow. a really interesting situation. Ow. So you can't afford to have a transformer that when it blows, your data center could be theory either offline for six months or in a degraded state running on a single transformer for um, six months to a year before it can be repaired. And that's why they're starting to move in that direction. Wow. Greg, another outage was one Mm -hmm. that happened in the UK. I don't know if it affected you or not, but it was Virgin Media where they had an intermittent broadband issue that was affecting people. It seemed like at the last mile. Do you happen to know anything about that one? Uh, it turned out it was something inside of the DSLAMs. So the cable, they use cable networking over here. The Virgin Media is a cable company, but very widespread across the whole country of the UK. Um, and they have a rights of way. The secret to this one is that it didn't actually affect me much because it actually happened in the earliest hours of the morning. And basically by the time I got out of bed and had a cup of coffee, it had been fixed. So no, fine. <laughs> was, that the, was that the same one that... <laughs> Was that the same? Because I, I know there was a couple. One of them was lasted, uh, I believe it was like something like 10 hours. Was that yeah. the same incident? Or okay. uh, That was part of the network. So you there just, was a couple you just of them got lucky. This year. Yeah, I got lucky. Yeah, the area that yeah. I was in was still working. I've got a, the, the, and this is, this is probably not a bad story in the sense that, again, Virgin Media, parts of the network are new and parts of the networks were built out 30 years ago. And the equipment, um, across the estate is of highly variable quality. 
shall we say. Mm. And so you can have a problem in well, one part of Well, they've also made the acquisitions, right? No, no. There was only there was two cable companies and they merged pretty soon after they set up. So you have a, the competitive situation is that you have cable in the ground and copper in the ground, and the copper in the ground is a national resource and it's shared, and then operators sit on top of that. So they either use their own electrical equipment on top of the, the copper network but the cable providers own the copper and the infrastructure and they merged 20 years ago. So there's only one and it's Virgin. But the status of the network is very variable because over time their investment cycle hasn't been uh, consistent, shall we say. So Virgin is part of Liberty Global then. So that's the one big company that you're referring to? Yeah, and I thought that they had like that Liberty Global would acquire UPC, UPC or yeah. some transit provider, but that might be a different part of the network and delivering different uh, services. Yeah. It's compl- it's very hard to know, to be fair. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's another uh, leak that happened, a route leak that impacted Cloudflare. This goes to July 2020. And the report from Cloudflare was, our network engineering team updated the configuration on a router in Atlanta to alleviate congestion. That, that was Bob. Bob did that. This configuration <laughs> contained an error that caused all traffic across our backbone to be sent to Atlanta. Oops. This quickly overwhelmed the Atlanta router. Did you, uh, did you folks at Thousand Eyes see that? So we saw the, the effect from outside of their network, right? So this was basically like an internal BGP issue where um, they were basically, traffic was effectively getting routed to this one area of their uh, network. And because of that was causing massive congestion. And so they were getting overwhelmed and we could see a lot of packet loss at the um kind of like the the edge of their network, if you will, you know. I think um, the interesting part of this outage was they set about to rectify some congestion that they had in Atlanta. And instead of removing some traffic, you know, from the backbone um, going to Atlanta, they started like leaking a lot of their routes into the backbone. Um, and that was just a BGP misconfiguration on one of their routers, which uh, did that. So uh, to Angelique, your point, like we saw that from the outside, so at the edge. And I think the interesting thing was it looked like all providers, you know, all transit and ISP internet service providers were dropping traffic. So there was like the speculation before Cloudflare like put out their very detailed RCA if this was a DDoS attack because they, it had signatures of looking like a DDoS attack. Yeah. You know, mm. um, a complete um, shutdown of sorts from outside in. But um, turned out it was BGP again. Well, it was sort of a DDoS. Well, not a DDoS attack, but sort of a DOS attack on themselves, I guess, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, That's fair. That's Mm. fair. Well, let, let's do one more outage, and then let's let's get to some application of this. And we're going to pick on CenturyLink again. So end of August, this might be a little fresher in people's minds if they're listening to this. Um, CenturyLink identified an issue to be affecting users across multiple markets, and it was an offending flow spec announcement that prevented BGP from establishing. Uh, from the way I read it, it was pre- the BGP sessions were unable to stand up because of this flow spec entry. Flow specs designed to help you filter out traffic, but somehow this filter uh, was terminating BGP sessions is kind of how I read it. Um, and yeah, if you can't establish your BGP neighbor relationship, you're not exchanging routes, routing tables, path information, and that's going to cause all kinds of odd things to happen in how traffic is flowing through the network. And in this case, hard outage. I think you described it earlier as an outage with a capital O. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, this was uh this was a big one for sure. And kind of caused by an internal BGP issue, but then had kind of implications, not only from the standpoint of them, their network not being available, but also what it meant was that from a BGP standpoint, they couldn't accept route uh, changes from their peers. So they were effectively hijacking their customers' announcements in, in many cases for them for the for their customers who had made changes. They were still continuing to announce routes to them and then black holing their traffic. So it was um it wasn't even something that a lot of um of their customers could even route around mm-hmm. because you know they they even if they made a change and they were peering with somebody else, um they they were still um unable to prevent CenturyLink from announcing routes. Yeah, because I think the the interesting thing that made this worse is because the nature of flow spec being so dynamic and relying on BGP that your flow spec rule was shutting down your BGP session and then your router comes back up and tries to reestablish BGP session and it gets that bending flow spec rule again. So it kind of goes into this loop. So even though other providers were um, trying to decouple themselves from CenturyLink, CenturyLink just didn't know. They were just totally overwhelmed to acknowledge mm-hmm. those yeah. BGP updates. Even though you were pulling your routes from sending them to CenturyLink, CenturyLink was still advertising your routes. They were yep. completely yep. locked. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. even if normally in this situation they'd go down, the routes would eventually time out across the network and you'd be announcing them somewhere else yep. to suck the traffic into your network outside of CenturyLink. Right. And it wouldn't do that. And so traffic was being black holed and dropped into CenturyLink's network because the flow spec rule was denying all traffic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, and they, people were angry. Like people were furious about it. I like the way you're amused by that, uh, that Greg. Yeah. Yeah. I just like, it's just like, if you're going to like, I was re- watching a video this week from uh, Jeff Houston, of course, from Apple, mm. who pointed out that BGP is a 65 year old protocol. It was invented <laughs> yeah. 65 years ago. And all the stories we're talking about here are absolutely showing that uh, that that's that's true. You know, I've been trying to say to people for a long time now that BGP really is time for us to replace it, but everybody goes, oh, "BGP is awesome." <laughs> <laughs> so the point of this isn't to pick on BGP, dude. We're gonna get on, you're gonna get on your hobby horse and ride it around. We don't have time for that today. Just a, bit, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. So what, what I thought, what I want us to do for the rest of the show here, with the help of the folks from Thousand Eyes, is make some recommendations. Um, so historically, if we've looked at cloud providers, our internet service providers, our WAN providers, those are things beyond our control. And if they break, we just go to the boss and go, eh, it's not us. You know, we're doing all the right things. All the stuff is good. It's them. They're busted. And we got to call into tech support and that's it. That's all we can do. I don't think that's good enough anymore. In other words, we need to be thinking about the fact that these services that we rely on, that we outsource to these cloud providers and our internet service providers and so on, are going to break. We need to be able to, first of all, troubleshoot the problem, figure out where the problem really is. And then second of all, uh, consider that if they do go down, we're going to need other services that we can rely upon to keep our businesses up and running so that we have, again, an answer for the boss. Um <sighs> Those aren't yeah, always cheap and easy things, but uh, but but the big thing here is is data and thousand eyes, folks. This is where you come in. Now, the core of your product, I think, 
a lot of the, the folks in the audience know about. They know that with the core Thousand Eyes product, you can monitor these networks that you don't know. So like you were talking about, okay, we could tell that this BGP session went down or these routes were withdrawn and uh, routing converged in a different way. Um, so, so talk about that, but then talk about what's you know, maybe more like the, the fact that you can go to the end point that people maybe don't know that they can use that data to help them troubleshoot all the way out to the end of that remote worker for instance. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point because we know today that like most workers are not in branch offices and they're, I mean, they're, they're working out of their homes. So you, and what that also means is that the path between the enterprise and the, all of those external services or even internal applications, there's just so many more network paths. You don't just have your branch office to um, SaaS, maybe you're doing internet, maybe you're backhauling to like a colo. Um, you have many, many networks that you don't have a commercial relationship with that are carrying your enterprise's traffic. So it's it's perhaps even more important to have visibility from uh, the user to these services. Um, and there's a number of things that you can do, um, not only to get visibility, but also remediate issues when you see them. So the big thing here is that is that visibility. Um, now you mentioned endpoint. Um, now I'll be honest; I have forgotten exactly what that is. I was a Thousand Eyes customer, and that product was just in beta when I was the uh, the customer back in the day. The endpoint product is an agent I deploy on the operating system, that kind of thing. Yeah, the endpoint is, uh, I mean, it was built with the same principle all the other Thousand Eyes products are built on, which is um, you are relying on networks, you're relying on applications that you don't own and control. So this is endpoint is a way of extending that visibility all the way to um, the remote user. And it's an agent that deploys on um, a remote desktop or a laptop, Mac or Windows, whatever that might be. Um, and it can do a couple of things, right? Like it can, first off, uh, for whitelisted domains, um, look at real user browser sessions as to how performance is. So if you're using Office 365 and that's been characterized as um, a domain IT teams want to monitor, then as you're using um, that particular application for your browsers, we the endpoint is going to capture um, not just... Um, performance information of the app itself, but um, to true thousand eyes DNA kind of relate that to how the underlying network, like your, how your Wi-Fi at home is impacting that, how your upstream ISP is impacting that, right? So that's one aspect of what um, Endpoint does. And then we extend that to um, proactively monitor some really critical services too, like your VPN concentrator, for instance. And you don't want to know if your VPN is down or if a particular regional um, you know, um, concentrator is going down just as your users are coming up. So you want to be proactively um, kind of alerted uh, to that. So the endpoint can um, combine you know, browser-based real user monitoring with um, synthetic transactions as well to some of these critical services. So, okay, there's a couple of things I want to go back and review here. So one, you mentioned you can determine from the endpoints data, from the endpoints perspective, what their Wi-Fi is like, what their ISP is like. So is mm-hmm. that proactive or is that they call into the help desk, ah, everything's slow, what's going on? And then you dig into what that the data that that endpoint agent has gathered and figured out from there? Or is it 
would it also be like, um, you know, this user is having a lot of trouble, you know, really high transaction times, that kind of thing? Um, so certain things like, you know, applications that you're traversing, um, that's more real time as uh, for those, you know, recommended IT applications, you, mm-hmm. you can basically, it, it, you can basically like have a whitelist of, um, I want to monitor you know, X, Y, Z, and only those get counted, right? So there's no aspect of you know, everything I do on my um, remote desktop is going to get monitored, but things like system parameters, like, you know, we also get into some device level metrics in terms of CPU, all of that's more, uh, it's, it's always on, um, obviously the device needs to be powered up and on, <laughs> but uh, that's more, um, you know, always on monitoring. So if somebody calls in into the help desk, then you don't have to activate uh, a trigger to collect that data. You can go back in time. You can filter based on that particular remote user, go back in time and see if Wi-Fi has degraded or not. Got it. Okay. That is going to rule out an awful lot of things since people's local ISPs and, and home home Wi-Fi particularly can really be the root of the problem. But how do you know otherwise? Now you've got hard data to prove that that's what's going on. That That's one, one piece of things uh, for sure. Yeah. We've seen a lot of cases where, um, you know, Wi-Fi and thereby related throughput of applications are impacted. So what seems like, hey, this is this file's taking me too long to um, download has been because the user is connected to, um, you know, just the building Wi-Fi uh, and not really. So by default, the device is connected to um, your generic Wi-Fi in, in your apartment building, for instance, and not tied to your home Wi-Fi. And yeah, you can download a file um, as fast as you would hope to. So the endpoint can get into um, those type of issues as well to dig further. The big deal to me here is that this is network data as opposed to it's an app and the app's not doing so well, but you kind of don't know what's going on underneath. From a ne- you're, you're troubleshooting the endpoint connection from a network perspective as a network engineer. Yes, but you're, but you're doing both. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You're, you are actually looking because we're, we're effectively looking at the real session that a user has with an application. So for example, I go to say box dot, um, well, I go to box or I go to SharePoint and I interact with that application. Maybe I go in there and I download a file. So all of that, um, that whole stage process where I log into the application, where I um, search for something, where I download something, that's all recorded and you can see all of the different application components as they um, as they get loaded on my machine, and you can record the performance of that, and I can identify where there might be errors or issues um, from an application standpoint. And that's great because that enables you to, to see issues there. But then if there are, you know, if something has gone wrong and it's not, it doesn't appear to be application related, maybe you haven't even been able to reach the application or it's running really slow, you can drill down to the network level and see, for example, hey, am, am, am I maybe breaking out to the internet at a suboptimal um, point? Maybe I'm connecting to a VPN and it's not a, a VPN mm-hmm. that's close to me. It's, you know, kind of out there. And then I'm, you know, basically um, taking a suboptimal path. Um, or is it um, maybe there's some packet loss on my local ISP? So you can really kind of drill into where the issue is occurring, which is really useful for a number of reasons. One, because you can lower the amount of time it takes to resolve these these um, issues with your with your um, employees. 
Um, but also it helps to give you evidence when you finally get to the point of determining where the problem is. You know, you take it to the SAS provider or to the ISP, or you maybe remediate something locally. And so you can, you, you can actually point to where the problem is. Um, the other thing too, I would say is that especially given like a variety of different solutions that are being used with remote workers, whether that be VPN or that be even in some cases SD-WAN or secure cloud gateway type solutions, you can often change routing just based on um, maybe where you're sending traffic. So you might, for example, send traffic to a different um, secure web gateway pop in order to route around an issue. So that can be a much more kind of proactive or uh, kind of direct way in which you affect change for the user when you might, it may take you longer to actually go to the, the provider and get a route fix, for example. But that implies something about your network design. That is that you have that option to even do what you just suggested there. Yes, that, I mean, that is true. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And that, you know, given, given how kind of reliant the enterprise is on um, the internet these days, I mean, it seems like um, those would be good options to kind of have in your toolkit because already, you know, there's, there's um, you know, you have to kind of figure out like, where am I going to break out traffic? Um, are, am I going to do split tunneling? Um, am I going to employ some type of cloud-based security solution? Those are things that are already being, uh, th- that are either already in place or being starting to be factored in. So, you know, the the question of kind of performance and whether or not you can use those solutions, not just from a security standpoint, but also could I leverage them to change routing and maybe then change performance, I think is an interesting idea. And, and that's that's really my point. Yeah, very much so. So. Greg, for example, you and I have been talking to SD-WAN folks for, I don't know, was mm. it five years mm. now? An awful lot. But one of the major design criteria is direct internet access for all the different offices and multiple internet connections, ideally to tier one providers. So you've got multiple backbones right. that you're yep. uplinked to to choose from so that you've got some really stalwart routing options, things that you can change that could affect uh, real performance for, for your yeah. user community, but you've got to have that infrastructure in place so that you can make those choices. I think one of the other things we should flag here is that a lot of SD-WAN providers are starting to offer their own backbones too. Um, mm-hmm. And they route to local POPs or they route to a CDN network or they route to uh, one of the cloud providers. Like there are options in some SD-WAN products to route over Azure or AWS or Google because their backbones are better than others. But you also don't get any visibility other than what the SD-WAN provider gives you. So if something comes unstuck and you're using Thousand Eyes to keep uh, monitoring what's happening in the public network, you could actually find that the traffic's just disappearing somewhere and you're not actually getting coverage. It's a very confusing marketplace uh, or it's a confusing time as, as different solutions flourish. Yeah, that, that's a that's a really good point because it it feels like there's the network services market is uh, really evolving. You have a lot of different players coming into the mix. Um, you know, even folks like CDM providers that you mentioned. I think Cloudflare is even mm-hmm. offering some kind of service um, where they're allowing their backbone to be used to you know effectively be like a WAN for uh, an enterprise. So there's, and then of course the cloud providers, they're they're starting to commoditize their backbone. 
and and then that really raises the question of are you getting what you're paying for? Are you getting yeah. performance mm-hmm. that is in line with you know uh, what you expect? And yeah. is it really better than just say plain vanilla internet? So that's where you really need to understand and kind of keep tabs on uh, performance. I'm just shaking my head here because that is such an open question. The whole idea right. with these 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 networks is you hit you use the internet to get to them as quickly as possible via whatever the nearest pop nearest on ramp to their network is, and then you're trusting that the secret sauce, the magic in their custom backbone right. there, is is going to really get you there faster. But how do you hold them accountable? You know, you do need to have a monitoring mm. system in place. So that you know yeah. you're truly getting better performance because you're going to pay dearly for it. To your question, point, Ethan, like how do you know you're going to get that performance? How do you even architect for that? I think the first step is uh, kind of evaluating and doing kind of a readiness and ROI check. Like, is, am I getting the performance that I they first of the provider um, claims to give me? And then is that a grade in performance really worth the dollars I'm shelling into it? Right, like as much as these providers are monetizing their network, the question is like, is the internet good enough to do what I need, um, or you know, do I really have to go um, into a provider backbone for that extra um, performance? So I think it's two aspects. One is just knowing and understanding and establishing what these new baselines are, and and doing like an ROI uh, assessment of performance, and then the second piece is when things go you know, south and not as planned, then having the transparency uh, with, res- with respect to monitoring um, comes in. I, I'm laughing as you say ROI, just because I'm writing a, a white paper on this exact topic right now. And one of the sections is how to do an ROI analysis. And it's kind of like a lot of ROI analysis. The whole idea is you can get something for free because the performance is so wonderful. You won't know how you live without it. So basically you're getting something for nothing, which it never works that way. <laughs> Doing an ROI analysis and these kind of things is nigh onto impossible. Uh, again, unless you've got excellent data and know exactly what's going on. All right, one more design thing I want to hit as we're getting towards the bottom of the show, and that is VPN design. Um, now, we've talked about, uh, you're hitting a concentrator that's actually near to you and so on and so on. All right, I, as, an, as a network engineer, I want you in the audience to just stand back for a second. Do you need VPN really at this point? Can't you just use HTTPS apps everywhere possible and isn't that better? And you might be going, um... I don't know. And maybe you don't know the answer to that question, but I think that's a like an architectural question that a lot of companies should be asking. You've done VPN for years, maybe because you've just always done it that way, but do you actually need that? It introduces complexity, potentially performance issues. There's licensing challenges. If you could dump that concentrator, you could get rid of that firewall that's this dedicated VPN termination device for you. Um, if you can maintain the security posture that you need without that device, wouldn't you rather? Wouldn't you like to do that? Am I am I crazy, Greg? <laughs> I don't know, mate. I, I I'd like to think that the cloud-based stuff. I think the thing about the SaaS VPN market that really attracts me to it is that the vendors have to make it work and they have to operate it. And for the first time ever, we might be actually in a situation when they realize that if they write bad code, that they're actually wearing the cost, not us. So yes. as much as that would uh, you know seem like utopia like getting rid of VPNs I think um, that question gets so tied into the maturity of you know certain apps within the enterprise itself 
right? Um, mm, mm, where mm. you are, like if you're still, I mean, yes, everything's moving to the cloud. We know that, but um, and enterprises are it's cloud acceleration. Yeah, agreed. But not all, you know, parts of the enterprise might be there just as yet. So, um, mm. you know, your maturity of the application could also depend if you need a VPN connection um, to back all into, you know, your old school traditional enterprise uh, data center, right? So I yeah. guess there's no like, easy answer to that, Ethan. No, there isn't. And I think the other challenge you've got is that a lot of companies have an SD-WAN solution, they have a remote access VPN solution. Mm. Uh, if you ran into, you know, if you were reacting to COVID and to the the, disport, the diaspora, as everybody moved to working from home, you might've picked up another remote access solution, maybe remote desktops in Azure or deploying some sort of VMware remote desktop solution on a, on a cloud provider. I've heard of people suddenly deploying second VPN concentrators hosted in AWS using uh, uh, bare metal instance, like bare metal VMs sort of thing. And if you're in that situation, you've got a problem where how do you, how do you on the help desk operate that? How do you converge the user experience into saying, oh, you're using this VPN or you're using that? So how do you bring all that together? And that's where tools like Thousand Eyes can be really useful because you can help to narrow down the troubleshooting much more quickly and have less stress. And you bring up a great point, right? Like just if you're looking at purely from a connectivity perspective, it's gotten so complicated. Um, with just the scenario that you mentioned, like you have VDI endpoints, you have um, different types of VPN concentrator endpoints. So one of the things that, you know, the approach we've taken, um, Thousand Eyes has taken to um, understanding this end user performance is, is looking at that end-to-end connectivity in context to performance, right? Because a lot of um, end user uh, monitoring solutions tend to focus heavily on um, just the device itself. And while that is an important part of um, understanding experience, like, you know, uh, the variables outside your device is just like um, quadruple right now. So keeping a tab on um, both mm. your, your device as well as that connectivity and, and internet health angle becomes really critical um, in the current situation we are in. Well, this has been a thoroughly enjoyable conversation. Um, man, with all the reliance that we have on other people's networks to get our work done, uh, your visibility is just huge. So anyway, you, you guys are well positioned with your various products. And, uh, and, and hey, we're glad you exist. Now, could you share with folks where they can find out more about Thousand Eyes? You guys, I know you guys have a podcast and different reports and different things. So tell the good people all about that stuff. Yeah, so you can go to thousandeyes.com. It's pretty straightforward. I, I think that everybody knows you can go to a website and from there you can find lots of great detail, including more information on Endpoint, which we talked a lot about today. And then if, and then as you mentioned, we we have a podcast that we do weekly called The Internet Report. And we talk about kind of topical stuff, you know, what's happened the previous week in terms of, um, it could be a uh, network-related outage, could even be an application outage, um, you know, like the the recent um, Microsoft one, I think it was yesterday. Uh, so, so lots of interesting stuff that we cover on that show. Uh, so we recommend that you check that out. You, you you make fun of people who screwed up. That's what you're trying to say, right? You, you make fun. Uh, we of don't. People. We don't make fun. I, <laughs> we try to we try to extract as 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 much kind of like uh, as much 
as many lessons as we possibly can from it. Um, you know, and that's what we did, for example, with the CenturyLink one, which is actually there were some things that that could have been done by enterprises who were impacted if they if they you know if if they had visibility and if they you know were a little bit more um, uh, if they actually made some specific changes. So that's the intent, and, right? Is to kind of yeah, learn. and and to add to that, right? Like not all providers are, um, you know, you don't see a detailed RCA like you would see from a Cloudflare, for instance, right? So just just yeah. having yeah. You know, transparency is not something that's universal across um, yeah. service providers um, uh, today. So I think our goal is to be able to actually lay out um, what mm-hmm. we saw from an outside-in perspective, and um, you know help enterprises uh, have that data to, and if they are actually mm. hit by an outage like this, what can you do to recover and how should you be thinking about it? That's, that's kind of the goal of the podcast. I found okay. it very useful for thinking about disaster recovery scenarios. So mm. I'm more of a, uh, I like to pre-disaster everything by thinking about right. how carriers can let me down or how BGP can fail yes. or how bad routers are. Yes. Kind of comes through in my yeah. in the way I speak a lot. I think is uh, that was my yeah, job for yeah. twenty years, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I was just going to say because um, it's not really even just a question of whether your your vendors could potentially fail, but it's a question of when. who are they dependent on, yes. um, and what could go wrong there. Because I, there was actually one particular application provider that was impacted, and they were not customers of CenturyLink. And from what we could tell, like it didn't appear that they were kind of in that chain from a front door standpoint. But then as it turns out, they had um, uh, like, it was one of their DNS providers that was using them as a service provider. So that's how they were kind of caught up and impacted. So it really is a question of like, what are your dependencies? And then what are your, what are the dependencies of your dependencies? (laughs) (laughs) And and listening to other people's outages helps you think of the way that outages might impact Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, very useful. It's like reading the CenturyLink outage reports or the Cloudflare outage reports and thinking about, oh, that could affect my network or how that could affect me. Uh, and, and that's the same reason that people listen to packet pushes is to learn about ideas. And you don't remember everything, but it, it helps in the long run. So, yep. And, and as we've been doing this, you know, this podcast for the last, maybe spring we start, Angelique, like March, um, so it was six months yep. in. How did just like tend to surprise you at times? Like you, we would have thought we knew everything about BGP hijacks and route leaks, and that's what you would see. And then mm. we had the central link outage, which kind of a flow spec, like you know, a benign thing right. <laughs> kind of cost it. So you're uh. you're kind of surprised in new ways by which things break. And the goal is to educate. Yeah. The and weirdly, they yeah. um they rescinded their entire flow spec deployment, and so now they're um, oh. open to DDoS. Right? Oh. By pulling out the flow spec, it means that they've got no DDoS mitigation now. And they won't redeploy it until they wow. can feel confident that Not they won't. Go. But, but I know what you're saying, Greg. Yeah. yeah. Flow spec is a key part of their DDoS mitigation strategy, right? This dynamic pushing right. out of IP addresses to black hole. So, yeah, so lots of interesting impacts that you have to think about. You know, mm. if CenturyLink is vulnerable to DDoS, so are you mm. if you're connected to CenturyLink. 
Well, now that we've scared everyone to death, it's time to bring <laughs> this podcast to a close. All right. So, hey, if you want to keep up with what's going on, on the internet, again, the internet report put out by the folks at Thousand Eyes, that's a that's a podcast. And then they put out a lot of written reports as well. ThousandEyes.com, you can find all sorts of good information. They're on Twitter at Thousand Eyes, and you can follow them on LinkedIn as well. And hey, we thank Thousand Eyes for being a regular sponsor here on Heavy Networking, because without our sponsors, we just can't do what we do, creating original content for your professional career development. And by the way, if you do ring up Thousand Eyes because you want to try their endpoint monitoring or any of their other fine products, please let them know that you heard about them on Packet Pushers. All of our fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog can be found at packetpushers.net. Check out the subscribe page for links to each of our shows hosted by technical experts, authors, and instructors as we cover networking, cloud automation, full stack, and more. And from Greg and Ethan here at Heavy Networking for over 10 years, last but not least, Remember that too much networking would never be enough.